that you've taken off that lot and turned into smoke for those new trees that you planted to pull that smoke, to pull that carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere. Technically renewable, but a really long time until it renews. Exactly. We don't have that kind of time in this climate crisis. You know, the United Nations tells us we basically have until 2030 to dramatically decarbonize the major economies of the world. If we were going to have a shot at slowing what appears to be an inexorable rate of global warming that we are experiencing right now. And as you're experiencing in California right now with these climate driven uh, rainstorms that you just don't see very often. Justin Catanoso, thanks so much for being my guest on Sea Change Radio. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Sway the future to the past and find what will endure. You've been listening to Sea Change Radio. Our intro music is by Sanford Lewis, and our outro music is by Alex Wise. Additional music by Horace Silver and Hank Williams. To read a transcript of this show, go to seachangeradio.com. Stream or download the show or subscribe to our podcast on our site or visit our archives to hear from Doris Kearns Goodwin, Gavin Newsom, Stuart Brand, and many others. And tune in to Sea Change Radio next week as we continue making connections for sustainability. For Sea Change Radio, I'm Alex Wise. Good morning and welcome to Film at 11 here on your community radio, KBOO Portland. This week, Matthew of KBOO's bedtime story show, Gremlin Time, looks at another rare popular culture item, in this case, Zaruichi the Fugitive. And Jeff Godsell revisits the Cary Grant comedy, My Favorite Wife. And we'll also re-air a review by Natalie Lasko of a film that is still relevant today, Fritz Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. But first, here are some quick looks at recent releases. A Man Called Otto is the new Tom Hanks film, a remake of a Scandinavian film, in turn adapted from a European bestseller. I'm sorry, you didn't get me earlier. The whole neighborhood is falling apart these days. No, 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 stop! Oh my God! Give me the keys. Hello. Hello. What's your name? Otto. Otto. O T T O. I'm Abby. O T T O. <laughs> the result has been sanitized and made less grim, characteristic of this director, Mark Forrest, and the usually resilient nobility of Tom Hanks makes him miscast here, as he was in Elvis. Detective Landor, one of our cadets. Hanged himself last night. That's the matter for the coroner. I'm afraid that's not the end of it. His heart was carved from his chest. What type of fella could do this? It'd have to be. A bad man. The Pale Blue Eye is also based on a novel, in this case, about a pre-Holmes style detective who is hired to investigate a death at West Point where a young Edgar Allan Poe happens to be a student. The film is slow-paced, murky, and its surprises, such as they are, feel muted 
as does a cast that includes Christian Bale, Toby Jones, and Gillian Anderson. For some reason, westerns have not been much of a force on the big screen for decades, possibly because the plethora of television westerns in the 50s and 60s killed the appetite, or maybe there aren't enough people in Hollywood with horse or gun skills, Rust suggests that much, or essays on the American character are now preferred via crime and superhero movies. In any case, five or six or so still come out every year, and two recent takes are here now. The Old Way is trying to gain traction from its being Nicolas Cage's first Western, but it is not a typically weird Cage film, more a dull, flat tale of filial revenge, as Kill Bill 3 is supposed to be. That is a son hunting down the gunman, played by Cage, who killed his father. Meanwhile, past master Walter Hill directed the monochrome brown dead for a dollar that is more complicated and more interesting. A bounty hunter is hired to track down a runaway bride and in the course of events runs into his old enemy, a professional gambler that he once sent to prison. The film stars Christoph Waltz, Willem Dafoe and Rachel Brosnahan and though it is another revenge tale, it has a more interesting dynamic. I've probably mentioned the menu before, but recently a colleague made an insightful remark that challenges the whole premise of the movie. Spoilers. It's fine that the Nobu-inspired chef for the island restaurant wants to kill himself and some of his pretentious patrons, but what's in it for his staff? Why do they want to go up in a blaze of fire? Motivation is a key element here, and films of the past, say the 40s or 50s, would spend hours analyzing motivation in order to give the script clarity. Meanwhile, I dreaded seeing The Fablemans after already witnessing Kenneth Branagh's semi-similar Belfast, which was so unfelt despite the fact that the events really happened to the actor. Followers of the director Steven Spielberg know this whole story already, and aside from vanity, why make it except as maybe an apology to his two sisters? But nevertheless, it is reasonably well done and ends with a last shot that is a clever sight gag. Probably the best film of the slow first season of 2023 is Megan, at least in terms of entertainment value and social comedy. It's a scary doll or puppet tale with a somewhat complicated setup before the inevitable last act full of violence and confrontations. But the various characters are interestingly conceived, and though the social commentary element is probably superficial, at least it's there. And now, Jeff recalls the glories of Cary Grant, Irene Dunn, and Randolph Scott in My Favorite Wife. Most people think of Cary Grant as being pretty adept at both comedy and drama throughout his career. What's not so well known is that no one else really thought so, including Grant himself, until he worked with Leo McCary in 1937 for The Awful Truth. McCary was well known for keeping a loose set on his films and encouraging improvisation. And Grant not only responded naturally to McCary's Oscar-winning approach... He also copied a lot of McCary's own mannerisms. We can only guess if that quizzical look of Grant's while leaning slightly back is one of those mannerisms. But regardless, 
His comic interplay with Irene Dunn was priceless and made The Awful Truth a classic. Grant followed these comedy hits with the Topper films and Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday. McCary signed Grant and Dunn for another film, even without a script. But soon he developed a story with Samuel and Bella Spiewak, who would eventually write the screenplay for My Favorite Wife. McCary was all set to direct as well until having a near-fatal car accident early in 1940. The director reigns were turned over to Garson Kanan, an underrated director in his own right, and soon to be one of Hollywood's best writers with his wife, Ruth Gordon, for films like A Double Life and the Tracy Hepburn films, Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike. When My Favorite Wife opens, Ellen Arden, played by Irene Dunn, married to lawyer Nick Arden, Cary Grant, and with two children, is being declared legally dead, her ship having been lost at sea for seven years. Nick is now being married to Bianca, played by Gail Patrick, when Ellen reappears. Turns out she wasn't dead after all, just stranded on a deserted island. And now rescued, she heads home to a shocked mother-in-law and to her two children, too young to remember her. To them, she's just a nice lady, until Ellen can find the right time to tell them. She heads off to find her husband, who just happens to be on his way to his honeymoon destination with his new wife, Bianca. She finds him there, at the same lodge where they had shared before. This situation sets up some obvious comic possibilities, and it demonstrates just how My Favorite Wife is so superior to so many comedies of its type. Grant has to find a way to explain to his new wife what has happened, but is at a loss as to just how to do that. Now, in less capable hands, having Grant dashing between two different suites and Bianca puzzled by his absences and reluctance to consummate their marriage could become tiresome and exhausting. How many comedies have we seen that have similar setups and go for the cheap and obvious laughs? But instead, time and time again, Kanan's direction avoids the cliché and allows for nuance in Grant's and Dunn's beautifully intuitive performances. And even Gail Patrick, so good as the evil sister in My Man Godfrey, is allowed to be a human being, not just the woman in the way of Ellen and Nick's eventual reunion. All as if the presence of Leo McCary was not far away, which, in fact, was partially true. Pre-production meetings were actually held in his hospital room, and when he was sufficiently recovered, McCary even visited the set a few weeks into the filming. Back to our story, things get decidedly more complicated when it is revealed that Ellen was not alone on that island. She was accompanied by a handsome and athletic Stephen Burkett, played by Randolph Scott. Stephen and Ellen had even come to nickname each other Adam and Eve. Nick tracks Burkett down to get to the bottom of things, only to find that Burkett still holds affection for Ellen, and if she's actually available, offers to marry her. Ellen doesn't mind using this development to cajole Nick into some swifter action toward their reunification, 
But Nick has his pride, and it takes a good chunk of my favorite wife's tidy 84 minutes for that to happen. Of course, to satisfy the production code, it is mentioned by Burkett that nothing improper occurred on the island. But ideas to the contrary are allowed to linger throughout the film. In the only slightly more liberated 1963, when the film was remade as Move Over Darling, this plot point was less allowed as it was brought front and center, as was customary for a naughty Doris Day movie. When My Favorite Wife finished shooting, McCary himself edited the film, and previews were arranged. It seemed pretty obvious that the comedy was taking a dip in the last two reels, so the comedy doctor went to work. The character of the judge from earlier in the film was brought back to straighten things out. McCary himself wrote the judge's dialogue. And not only does the scene work, it gives character actor Granville Bates a chance to shine. Peter Bogdanovich would virtually steal the idea for ending, for his homage to McCary, Hawks, and all the screwball comedies. What's up, Doc? My Favorite Wife is available for rental streaming, and I recommend Tina Fey's introduction to the film on YouTube when she was a guest on TCM. This is Jeff Godsell for Essentials of Cinema, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. And don't forget to drop into Jeff's website, Essentials of Cinema, for more recommendations. And you are listening to Film 11 here on Community Radio, KBO Portland. Please become a member today. This week, Matthew of KBO's bedtime story show, Gremlin Time, looks at the fourth entry in the long-running feature film series from Japan about Zadoichi the Blind Swordsman. In this case, Zadoichi the Fugitive. If you haven't seen this series starring uh, uh, Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman, uh, you may have noticed it, and it seems a little intimidating. There's like 26 films, you know, where would you want to start? Uh, I'd recommend this fourth entry, Zatoichi, the Fugitive. The formula for this films were just kind of coming together in this entry, and it's well photographed and beautifully edited. And uh, the tale is, is really kind of interesting. Uh, it concerns this... Uh, gangster family and Zatuichi comes into the middle of this intrigue uh, that we've got this one boss leader uh, Tokuyuro who wants to take over these other rival gangs and then we have uh, another man Samazu who had been a gangster leader, a Yakuza leader but he'd lost everything due to this neighboring gang who had taken away his his uh, empire or whatever it was and he's now reduced to running this inn with his daughter Nobu and so Ichi, on the run from this other gang, uh, stays at this inn, and he befriends Nobu, the daughter, and she finds him funny and interesting, and she confides in him that they used to live in this big house, but now they're reduced to just running this inn, and she seems to be content with that. Meanwhile, the next day, the, um, the other gang, 
uh, led by uh, Zakaichi, who's a young man whose father used to run the gang, and he's the one who, who took over Shimazu's gang. He shows up at the end and demands that she hand over Ichi because they have a price on his head. Well, she thinks Ichi's just this harmless beggar, and so she just gets back at him and kicks him out of there. And so that doesn't set him up very good with the other gangster leader, the other Yakuza leader, who wants to get rid of uh, Zatuichi just because of events that had happened in the previous film. So we have this very interesting story of revenge and greed. And in the heart of it, we've got this young couple, Nabu and Sakuichi, from the two families that are now at odds with each other. And so it's like nature is kind of out of balance, and Ichi, in his way, he's sort of a force of fate or something that, that brings things back into balance. Now, the photography on this is very nice, and the editing really brings out the story. We've got some very interesting scenes, which, which is partly why I really like this movie, is how certain moments are presented visually in such an engaging way. You know, it, Japanese audiences for films at this time, as I understand it, it was always a big social thing. People are talking and eating and smoking cigarettes and carrying on while the movie's playing. And then I guess once the movie gets more interesting, people kind of settle down and their attention's focused on it. So you can kind of see this with uh, this movie, which it seems to be kind of long and kind of takes its while to get things together. But the story is solid. And so Ichi, at the beginning, is set upon by this man who wants to get a, this reward for killing Ichi. And Ichi is unaware of this. So he, the man's not a very good swordsman, but he won't be deterred. And, and Ichi is just forced to cut him down. And so as he's dying, he mentions his mother, who's a Yakuza, and that there's a price on Ichi's head. But he dies before he can tell Ichi who wants to get him dead. So he takes it upon himself to seek out the man's mother. And then he tells her that her son, he's got news of her son. And she, of course, says, what is that no good, you know, what she's up to now? And he tells her that he's dead and that he had to kill him. And it was a fair duel and everything. And at first she's a little angry. She wants to strike him with a piece of firewood. But then she sees how sincere he is and that he's acting in the honorable way that the Yakuza live by. And... And she is, is content to find that it was a fair duel. He didn't just die on the side of the road. And then Ichi offers up his own money to her saying, oh, before he died, he wanted me to give you this 10 ru. And so then that's the money that can be used as a funeral and everything is set right here because Ichi does the honorable thing. He goes to the next town and gets involved in this intrigue where this boss wants to take over these other gangs and he gets this fallen boss to hide this uh, ronin samurai whom we find out is now going, is now married to the woman that Satoichi had been interested in in two of the previous three films. And so here's this character returns and she's now leading this kind of outlaw life with this ronin samurai. And so the... Yakuza bosses want to have the samurai who's now jealous of Zatuichi to kill Zatuichi and the young man Sakichi so that he can take over all the gangs and the 
Nobu's father can now be back again in good graces with the Yakuza. So how this all comes to end is what makes this a really interesting movie to watch. It's romantic, it's adventurous, and it's got some great uh, trick swordplay by Zatoichi and one of the best final duels in any samurai film at the end of Zatoichi, The Fugitive from uh, 1963, uh, directed by Takuzu Tanaka, who did a lot of the films, and also, of course, a star in Shintaro Katsu as Satuichi, the fugitive. Thanks, Matthew. And again, thanks for listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. Finally, here's Natalie Lasko with a detailed look at Lang's The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. It begins in a boiler room. Immediately, we hear the overwhelming sound of machinery. The monotonous rhythm is maddening as the camera slowly, almost aimlessly wanders around the room. And suddenly, upon staring at a wall, the camera jolts down to reveal a terrified man, who we later learn is Hofmeister, hiding. Two strangers walk into the room. They are seen talking, but there is no heard dialogue. The characters are completely silent, drowned out by the overpowering noise of machinery. They secretly spot the man and leave. This man soon after brandishes a gun. He debates opening the door and leaving the room. We are soon taken outside where the same man carefully walks down the street. A wooden beam crashes to the pavement, missing him. There are three more strangers at the end of the street. He turns and runs. Two more strangers roll a barrel of petrol off a truck and it explodes. The first five minutes of the film tell a riveting story of suspense, all without sound. Why is that man hiding? Who were the two strangers? Why do they want to kill him? Who is behind all of this? This film is the second of Fritz Lang's Dr. Mabuza trilogy called The Testament of Dr. Mabuza. The Criterion Collection summarizes the film writing, locked away in an asylum for a decade and teetering between life and death, the criminal mastermind Dr. Mabuza has scribbled his last will and testament, a manifesto establishing a future empire of crime. When the document's nefarious writings start leading to terrifying parallels in reality, it's up to Berlin's star detective, Inspector Lohmann, to connect to the most fragmented, maddening clues in a case unlike any other. The reason I choose to talk about the second film of Dr. Mabuza trilogy rather than the first is because of its particular historical relevance in relation to World War II, the arrival of technological modernity, and the emergence of sound in world cinema. Fritz Lang was an Austrian filmmaker, and the making of the first two Mabuza films saw the rise of the Weimar Republic and fascist Nazism. The first Dr. Mabuza film, called Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, was released in Germany in 1922 as a two-part film. At this time, the Weimar Republic was in full swing, inflation was rising, and Germans were incredibly unhappy with their government. A decade later, The Testament of Dr. Mabuza was scheduled for release on March 24, 1933, at the same theater that hosted the original premiere of the Dr. Mabuza the Gambler in 1922. Three months before its scheduled premiere, Adolf Hitler came to power at the end of January 1933, and on March 14th, he established the new Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda, headed by Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels soon banned the film in Germany as a menace to public health and safety. 
as a result, the film debuted in Budapest, Hungary on April 21st, 1933, and Fritz Lang escaped Germany July 31st, 1933. Essentially, the words of Dr. Mabuza encapsulate as a warning to the public of Nazi propaganda and its imminent doom. One of the pioneering filmmakers, Lang shapes his films with complex narratives and builds them through his masterful command of sound, light, and shadows. Fritz Lang is deemed as the creator of science fiction genre through his film Metropolis and has been coined as the master of darkness by the British Film Institute. In his films, Lang explores human loneliness and the capacity that humans have for inexplicable actions. In other words, he explores the dark moral of humans and a madness in relation to human desire. The Dr. Mabuza trilogy critiques human desire of control, whereby Dr. Mabuza's control takes the form of destruction, chaos, and ultimately his seduction of humankind. So back to the beginning sequence of the movie, the boiler room void of human dialogue with no sound propelling the narrative. While the testament of Dr. Mabuza was not Lang's first film in sound, it was in fact M that was his first. Tension, emotion, and pivotal plot points are delivered in the Testament of Dr. Mabuza with sound as a central force. Given that Dr. Mabuza the Gambler was a silent film, the Testament of Dr. Mabuza officially marks Lang's transition to sound. After the scene in the boiler room, the film bursts with human voice. The screen cuts to black and we begin to hear a man's voice humming. After 10 seconds of this, the screen fades into a sign indicating that we are in the office of a homicide squad headed by Inspector Carl Lohmann. The film then cuts to Lohmann himself behind his desk, standing before a map of the city and proudly lighting his cigar. Blackwell writes in his book, A Companion to Fritz Lang, not only is this sequence an exposition of the forcefulness and centrality of sound in the film to come, but it underlines Lang's utilization of the full capacity of sound image relations. If we follow the sequence without sound, it is not simply that we are left in the dark about what is going on, but we become completely confused by the discontinuities in action and other visual ruptures. Put in another way, in the opening of the Testament of Dr. Mabuza, Mabuza is hiding behind a narrative driven forward by sounds. So who is Dr. Mabuza? The Criterion Collection calls him a criminal mastermind and a madman, but the professor in the film says it best in his own words. Silence, you have no idea. No one has any idea what kind of phenomenal superhuman mind has come to an end with Dr. Mabuza's death. This mind would have lain waste to our own rotten world, which is long overdue for destruction. This godless world, devoid of justice and compassion, consisting only of selfishness, cruelty, and hatred. This mind would have destroyed mankind, which itself knows only destruction and extermination, and which could only have been saved in its final hour through terror and horror. Dr. Mabuza is less of a man and more of an entity dedicated to the destruction of humankind, a destruction that cannot be stopped. In the first film, Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, Dr. Mabuza said it best himself, I am the state. One of the most famous scenes of this film is where Dr. Mabuza takes over the mind of the professor. The professor is in his study. The camera pans to all of the professor's paraphernalia. 
all masks, skulls, or paintings of faces, all hyper-stylized, almost inhuman faces, where nothing but the eyes are recognizable. The professor reads the last of Dr. Mabuza's notes out loud. The empire of crime. Humanity's soul must be shaken to its very depths, frightened by unfathomable and seemingly senseless crimes. Crimes that benefit no one, whose only objective is to inspire fear and terror. All of a sudden, an ominous whisper, what we can assume is Dr. Mabuza, continues reading. Because the ultimate purpose of crime is to establish the endless empire of crime, a state of complete insecurity and anarchy founded upon the tainted ideals of a world doomed to annihilation. When humanity, subjugated by the terror of crime, has been driven insane by fear and horror, and when chaos has become supreme law, then the time will have come for the empire of crime. As the voice finishes this monologue, the camera pans to a superimposed image of a horrific, exaggerated Dr. Mabuza. We now know we are entering the subconscious of the professor's mind. We learn that it is through the subconscious that Dr. Mabuza has been transferring his evil commands. This new presence of Mabuza embodied within the subconscious is horrifically exaggerated. His eyes have grown large and bug-like. His hair is wiry and stands up on end. His nose appears larger and even more crooked, and his brain can be seen underneath his skull. His presence emulates the human features of the masks and painted faces in the professor's room. This superimposed image moves to the side that the professor is sitting and absorbs itself into his body. Dr. Mabuz has become the professor. The empire of crime will continue. The Testament of Dr. Mabuza is a masterful crime thriller where five narratives happen at the same time. Dr. Mabuza's criminal divisions who do not know exactly who's giving the orders. Tom and Lily's love story. Hoffmeister's descent into madness. The professor and his study of Dr. Mabuza and Inspector Lohmann, who is trying to tie all the missing pieces of a criminal syndicate together. Throughout the film, the piece cuts between these five narratives, and by doing so, the overarching storyline comes together for the audience. Meanwhile, the characters are still left oblivious to what is actually going on. This craftful piecing together of narratives that results in the audience knowing more than the characters themselves, married with the unparalleled camera movements used for sudden visual reveals, and sound as a central point among the entire film, all bring suspense to the movie and creates a masterful work that results in a viewer glued to the screen. Thanks, Natalie. And again, thanks for listening to Community Radio KBOO Portland. Film at 11 will be back next Friday, so until then, keep watching your screens.
You are tuned into KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934.